Okay, let's take our Bible and let's go back to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation. Yeah, pray for uh, my family as well. We have three that are out, dropping like flies. And uh, no, but uh, Joshua stayed home with my wife and, and Abigail. Abigail's has been unwell for the past couple days, and so Josh stayed home, and my wife is not up to taking care of Abby, so so it is, so it is. All right, we're going to be in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 to start. Let's pray, and then I want to give you a brief review over what we talked about last week, and then uh, we'll uh, examine chapters 2 and 3 a little bit more before we move on. Let's pray together. Our Lord in heaven, uh, thank you so much for being our God. Thank you for your kind and uh, gracious disposition toward us, that you love us and you show your love to us. Thank you for uh, each and every person that's here and then some that aren't here but would be here if they could. And they're uh, no doubt listening in and desirous to hear your word even where they are. Uh, Lord, I pray for those that are on the way. I pray that you'd give them protection and those that are traveling and uh, those among us that are ill. Lord, please give grace and help. Uh, to those people and comfort and a quick recovery. Lord, as we look in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and and 7 and other chapters, Lord, we pray that you'd give us understanding. I pray that each person, uh, myself included, would uh, profit from the truth, that it would further solidify and clarify what the Scriptures teach, that that might give us hope. And uh, Lord, just be with us and, and uh, teach us as we study your word in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Revelation 2 and 3. As a, as a brief review, good to see Patrick this morning. You missed it. You missed it yesterday, though. That food, that taco soup was so good. So I'm, so, I'm sorry. Maybe next time. Hey, we're having a Christmas fellowship coming up in December. So, you know, maybe you can make up for it and eat double that day. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, Chapter 2 and 3, 2 and 3. So in review, we looked at the book of Revelation, how that uh, we looked at several verses that, and it is important that we establish from a doctrinal perspective, you know, oh, doctrine is so boring. Well, doctrine, listen, doctrine is the foundation of what is true and what is false, right? That's how you determine, uh, you know, you have to have the doctrinal foundation so that you can determine what is true, what is false, what is right, what is wrong. And then that, in turn, affects our lives, the practice, you know. And so we looked at Revelation, and we've seen the different verses that give clear indications that the book of Revelation is intended. It is a prophetic book, primarily. And uh, we looked at uh, verse number uh, 19 of chapter 1, gives us the basic outline, which is, it covers the things that are past, the things that are present, and the things that are future. And, uh, and so uh, we looked at especially this, the letters to the seven churches just very briefly, and we saw the three facets of those two chapters, chapters 2 and 3. And we saw how the first facet, the first thing to keep in mind, is that when John wrote these seven letters, uh, that is, the Lord wrote the seven letters through John. That's actually what the, the Bible says. Um, these seven letters were uh, to seven actual churches in actual places in the first century 
in what is present-day present Turkey, okay, which is called in the Bible Asia Minor, Asia. And then, um, so you saw the historical churches. Then we saw there's an application where you, whereby you can take all the information from each church and you can apply it to yourself or to our church, Choice Hills Baptist Church, and can, can uh, you know, can glean spiritual truth and, and uh, exhortations and instruction for us today. And that's universally, universally applicable. But then we also saw through the churches in Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea that there is a prophetic aspect. And that's what we're looking at. And, and hopefully that's going to come into clear view as we look at them. So the reason why there is a prophetic aspect, and, and listen, there are some people that reject that idea, okay? I, I, have, I have a personal, a very good personal friend who, does, who rejects the idea that Revelation chapter 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches, have any prophetic meaning at all. No, they just reject that totally. And I just don't agree um, because of the, the things we saw last week. The fact that the Lord mentions in these let, the letters to the seven churches His coming, at, in other words, He tells, for instance, we'll see in a minute when we look at Philadelphia, He tells Philadelphia to hold fast till He comes. So that, of course, cannot be a reference to the church in Philadelphia because Jesus hasn't come, and that's been 1,900 years ago. And so, of course, that has a future meaning. And, you know, that's not a surprise to us because we know that many, many prophetic passages of Scripture have dual meanings. In other words, it, it meant a certain thing to that person at that time, but then there's aspects of it that had, a, had something in view that was far beyond just their time. And so that's kind of what we have here. But in every case, no matter if the Lord rebukes the church or the Lord approves the church in question, there is always a word of, uh, there's always a word that reminds us that even in the church of Laodicea, which we're going to read in just a minute, the Lord has a word for the individuals that are faithful, right? The individual, even if the whole church is gone, you know. And so, and that, that of course reminds us of the fact that, you know, even if, Everyone around us departs from God. We have a personal and individual responsibility before God. Remember, the Bible says, so then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. That is individual. There is no hiding in the group, uh, you know, before the Lord. The Lord sees us, each and every one. And so we have a responsibility individually and personally to be faithful to God to follow God regardless of what is happening around us. And so let's look at chapter 3. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, is the letter to the church in Sardis. And the Lord doesn't have a lot, a lot to say, but He does say in verse number 3, Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. All right, trivia question. Of course, the reference to a thief coming at an unknown time, we've studied that, remember? To whom did the Lord speak that, that parable 
or that comparison of the thief coming at an unknown time? Was the Lord speaking to His people or to someone else? He was speaking to someone else, right? Now that was in uh, that was in Second uh, Thessalonians where He talks about where the Lord says, but ye are not in darkness. Max, that's 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He said, but ye are not in darkness that that day shall overtake you as a thief. So the, the warning of the thief coming is for those that are unaware, the world, that are unaware. But to us, he says, that's not you. You're not unaware. Besides that, to us, the Lord is not a thief coming to plunder. The Lord is a welcomed, uh, a welcomed you know, his coming is a welcomed event. We're not fearful of His coming, or we shouldn't be. We should be hopeful, right? Expectant. And so, um, and so you have this here, so that gives us an indication of the state of this church. The Lord says, you better, be, you better be, be watchful. You better be paying attention to your state and condition, okay? But notice, there is a mention of His coming, because prophetically speaking, this church and the, those that identify with this church in Sardis will be apparently be present when the Lord returns. All right, then we go to Philadelphia. He says, and of course, I said, this is the church of liberty and missionary activity. Why do I say that? He says in verse number seven, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? These things saith he that is holy, he that is true, he that hath the key of David. This is the key. He that openeth, and no man shutteth, and shutteth, and no man openeth. I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. For thou hast a little strength, and hast kept my word, and hast not denied my name. Now, the reason I say that is there are very few periods in history, in church history, in which the amount of liberty that we enjoy has been enjoyed. Very few times, very few times, in many, not every place, but in many places around the world, Christians worship, serve the Lord, and evangelize largely without hindrance. Not everywhere. China is an exception. There are countries in Africa that are exceptions. Generally, though, in many countries, that is the case. And even if, even if that's not the case and there is hindrance, the hindrance is not particularly severe. Now, again, there are exceptions, but, but that liberty, of course, we know ultimately God is the one behind that liberty, right? He has business to get, to get done. And so that's, that's why there's an open door. And, and in the Scripture, the idea of an open door that no man can shut is a reference to Liberty is a reference to opportunity. And of course, we, you know, just a very brief uh, survey of, of church history. I mean, we know that, uh, that in the post-Reformation period, you know, you think about the Church of England and uh, William Tyndale. Anybody know what William Tyndale said when, before he was martyred, burned at the stake for the Bible that he had translated into English? What did what, he say? Lord, come on now. I know, Joseph, open the king of England's eyes because that was persecution from the king of England. And then later we know that the Lord answered that prayer apparently because England became one of the first places, you know, 
well, it wasn't the first, but it became the center of what became religious freedom. And of course, we know that came here. And then, you know, missionary activity went out from England first and then from the United States to all over the world. And the Lord says, thou hast kept my word and hast not denied my, my name. Now look at verse number, verse number 10. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon all the world, to try them that dwell upon the earth. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. So this church has a crown, a reward from the Lord for their faithfulness. And the Lord, and the Lord says to those who are faithful, the Lord reminds us, be careful, because it's not over till it's over. You know, in other words, that reminds us of the scripture that says that the, in 1 Corinthians where the Lord will give us rewards, but to those that are unfaithful, what, what will he do? Will he throw them into hellfire? No. What, what will he do? They will lose rewards. Not their salvation, but their rewards. And that's what he's saying, that no man take thy crown, right? But notice what he says, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation which shall come upon all the world to try them that dwell upon the earth. An obvious reference to a period yet future that will try all of the world. And we know there's only one event that fits that description, and that's the, the, the tribulation. But the Lord says he will keep them. Now, either the church at Philadelphia in the first century, in like AD 90, had people that lived over almost 2,000 years, or <laughs> this is a reference to kind of a period or an era that exists when the Lord returns, all right? And that's, that's, what, that's what you have there. And then in verse number 14, you have the church of Laodicea. He says, verse 15, I know thy works and thou, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I, were, I would thou wert cold or hot. So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, I am rich, and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Now, these are people that take the name of Christ, okay? These are not people, you know, atheists or agnostics. These are people that take the name of Christ. This is a church, all right? And knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. So you have the Lord giving a warning to a church that because of their wealth and prosperity, think themselves okay with the Lord. And the Lord says, you're not. I am going to reject you. Right? That's the image. I mean, you think of you know, drinking water and spewing it out of your mouth. That's the image. And so this church, following the prophetic uh, theme here, this church will be rejected by the Lord. Rejected by the Lord. But in verse 20, we're reminded of what I just said a minute ago. Of the truth that even in the midst of a church that is largely doesn't know God, Right? The Lord stands at the door and knocks. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Verse 20, if any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him 
and sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. You see that? The Lord is standing at the door. He's outside. That's, that's a bad situation. Jesus is outside of the church. That is the state of the church of Laodicea. But he says to every person individually, if you will open the door, you and I will have fellowship. Right? That's to the individual. The outlier, you might say. Right? So the final church in this prophetic theme here is ultimately largely rejected by the Lord. What, you know, what a proper comparison of Christianity today. I mean, how fitting. Fat, happy, content. Totally ignorant of their spiritual destitution. I mean, that, that is a perfect description of Christianity in many places in the world, and especially in our country. And then we turn to chapter 4. And in verse 1, the Bible says, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. Where did the rest? There it is. I was like, where did the rest of my notes go? So because he says there's a, in verse 1 of chapter 4, you have a marker, a marker of, it's a, it's a page turn. I will show thee things which must be hereafter, which follows, as I mentioned before last week, it follows the outline given in chapter 1, verse 19. So from chapter 4 on, passes on from what's covered in chapters 1 through 3 and now goes into things that are yet future, okay? Now, what he says is in verse 2, immediately I was in the Spirit. Look at this description. And behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat upon the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. Now look at verse 4. Pay attention to verse 4. Listen, this is key. What I'm about to tell you is one of the keys to understanding when the rapture of the church will take place in reference to, in relation to God's prophetic calendar, okay? Verse 4, And round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And then in verse 7, I'll just skip down. Or, well, I guess we read verse 6 and 7. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four, four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf. The third beast had a face of a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within. And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts... Give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever. 
the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. Now, I want to submit to you something, and I'll show you why I say this, okay? The Bible clearly demonstrates that the four and twenty elders, the twenty-four elders that are shown in heaven that John sees in his vision, after the period of the church has been covered, so marking that point to future events, that's 4 verse 1, he sees 24 elders, and those elders represent the church. Okay? I'm going to show you why that is in just a minute. First of all, in verse 4, they're clothed in white raiment. Okay? White raiment, white clothing, is often a picture of righteousness in the Scripture. Okay, that's, and that, that's universal, that's, that's, that's accepted. Now, we know that angels often appear in white raiment because, of course, angels created by God are righteous as well. But that's the first indication is that these elders are clothed in white raiment, white clothing. Secondly, they're called elders, which indicates they're people. Okay, they're people. As far as we know, angels don't have an, an age. All right, there's no... The idea of, a, of an elder is someone who is older. We, we, sometimes we get hung up on that. You know, as a funny, a funny side story, in Cambodia, of course, there's a lot of Mormons, like Mormon missionaries that come from Utah and different parts of the U.S. to go to, go to um, uh, Cambodia. And does anybody know what a Mormon missionary is called, what their title is? Elder. Well, I'll just put it to you like this. Anna is an elder to some of those Mormon missionaries. They call them elder, but what's funny is in Cambodia, they, re, they, they refer to themselves, instead of saying chatom, which is elder in Cambodian, which means older, an, a person who's older, they say elder. That's how they, they use a Cambodian pronunciation. And nobody knows what it means. But here you have, in a, in a, in a country where age is very, very important, much more important than in our society. You have 18, 19, 20-year-old young people that are called elders, which is just it's funny. But when, when we read the Bible, an elder means an older person. Now, the, what I said before is that there's no indication that angels have age. And so the mention of the elder is, is kind of an important thing because that's something that's used to people, okay? Number three... The 24 elders is a group that, is, that has a, a definite number. You notice that there's 24. And the 24, uh, 24 in reference to a number is actually, it's not very common in the Bible. But one time it's found is in the courses of the priests in the Old Testament. In other words, there were, there were 24 courses whereby, because there were so many priests later on in the history of Israel, when you get into David and Solomon's time, the tribe of the, the sons of Aaron had multiplied. And so what they did is they developed a system so that certain families would serve in the temple for a week or two at a time in 24 courses throughout the year, right? It's like a schedule. And that's one of the few times the word 24 is mentioned. And so you have this definite number of people. They're, they're, they're people. Notice in verse 4, what does it say? They had on their heads what? Crowns of gold. Crowns indicate what? 
Authority. Power. How many times in the New Testament do you find the word crown in reference to the, a reward the Lord gives people? Here's what he says in the New Testament now. He says he'll give people an incorruptible crown, a crown of righteousness, a crown of life, a crown of glory. In Revelation 3.11, we just saw that. Beware lest, uh, uh, lest anyone take what? Thy crown. So a crown is actually a, a reference to authority that the Lord gives to a believer at the judgment seat of Christ. And these, all of these uh, people, all of these uh, elders, each one has a crown of gold. And then we drop down to verse number, uh, verse number 10. And of course, you know this, this language. You know, if you've been studying the Bible any length of time, you've heard this language. The four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne. Which is to say, Lord, you gave these to us. You enabled us to be faithful. These rightly belong to you, right? Right? That's So the Lord apparently, you know, I'm positing that this, and I believe the Scriptures clearly teach that this group is the church. Now, it's not called the church, and that might bother you. It doesn't really bother me, but the description is of the church, okay? So here you have the Lord apparently has already given the crowns out, the rewards, right? So you have that John sees this event. The judgment seat of Christ has already happened. He's already distributed the rewards to the church, and they take the crowns and they cast, it, cast the crowns at his feet, saying that he alone is worthy, right? Now, this is the only time in the Bible this happens. All the songs and words and all the, all the references to that that we hear in church and things like that and preaching and such, this is the only time. This is it. This is it. All right, now let's go to verse number Look back at verse number four. And round about the throne, this is the throne of God, were four and twenty seats. All right, so you have the throne of God. And then, of course, if you've ever seen a throne, a throne is not just a chair. A throne, a throne is like an entire area, right? And, and then... Round about the throne, so you have this surrounding kind of, I'm just visualizing in my mind, you have 24 seats, and they're, they're in and about the throne of God. Go back to chapter 3 and verse number 21. Look at what it says. Talking to the church in Laodicea. He says, to him that overcometh, that is the person that opens the door, will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. So you see this picture where you see the throne of God, but you see all these other thrones too that are all part of the throne of God, the throne area of God, if you want to call it that, right? The, which is a, a, a direct description of chapter 3, verse 21. Now, go to chapter 5. 
I said before that the elders are, are not 24. Now, John viewed the elders, just like many things in Revelation, he viewed the elders as they appeared, and he described that. But these elders do not represent 24 individuals in the prophetic meaning. Now, be careful. When you're talking about, when you're talking about symbolic meaning, you can't use that just willy-nilly. That's not allowed. When you read the Bible, you can't just take something and say, well, that's probably symbolical because it doesn't fit your little theological paradigm. People do that all the time, all the time. They'll take, especially take obscure Old Testament prophecies and things, and they'll latch on to something, and they'll say, well, this, my Bible, not my current Bible because I got the new, uh, a new Bible, but my old Bible was printed by uh, a group that is, Amillennial, and we've already we've discussed amillennialism. They don't believe in a thousand-year reign of Christ. They believe it's spiritual only, right? And the church is basically that. Okay, so they go to the Old Testament and all these references to Israel, and they don't say Israel did this, Israel did that. They say the church, the church, the church, because they symbolize all of those references to Israel that are not intended to be symbolized. Now, on the other hand. There are places in the Bible that are symbolical, right? There are places in the Bible that are absolutely symbolical. But when it is symbolical, the Lord tells us. He gives us an indication. This is not to be taken literally. This is representative. Now, I'm going to show you why that's the case. Look at chapter 5. Actually, the elders appear in a large part of the book of Revelation in the heavenly scenes. Okay, so let's look at a few of those. Verse 5. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Apparently a book, a scroll, that contained written the judgments of God because every time one of those seals is broken and that scroll is unwound a little ways, another judgment falls. Another seal broken, it's unwound, another judgment falls. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the only one that has the authority to open the seal. Because no, not just anyone can open the seal. Only those that have the prerogative to do that are allowed to do that, right? All right, so we keep reading verse number nine. Uh, verse number eight, I'm sorry. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and the four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb. Notice the mention of the elders again. Having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors. What's the next, few, few, the next phrase say? The next clause. Which are the what? Prayers of saints. This is one reason we know that the elders are people. Not only that, they're saints. Because they're holding these vials that these vials represent the contents, which is the prayers of saints. So the object here is that they're holding their prayers that have been stored up. And we know that's a, a scriptural idea too. And so these prayers that they're holding, these vials represent the prayers of saints. Okay, so that tells us that these men are, these people are saints. Now, what is a saint? Angels are not saints. People that, that uh, a religion declares to be a saint, 
is not a saint. A saint is every person that believes on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a saint because they have been made pure, right, by the blood of Christ. That's what saint means, pure one. All right, keep reading. Verse 9 is the crux. Who do the 24 elders represent? Are they individual people or do they represent a different group? Verse 9, and they sung a new song. This is the elders now saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof. For thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. This is the definitive, definitive, definitive identification of these, of these 24 elders. Who are they? They have been redeemed. You know what that means? They were once sinners. That tells you something. They have been redeemed. Are they Jews or not? No. It says, out of every kindred, tribe, and nation. That means they're Gentiles. They're not Hebrews. They've been redeemed by God. Of course, how many people is this? How many people have been redeemed? They're out of every nation. So we know that it's not limited to 24 individuals, although that's the symbolism. This, is many, this represents many, many, many multitudes of people, right? All right, so let's do a quick survey as we try to finish this up. In the book of Revelation, in the book of Revelation, there are various groups seen. Okay, you have, we mentioned them before, you have the four beasts. You have the 24 elders, which are here, which we know are gen, as a Gentile group who have been redeemed. In, ver, in chapter 5, verse 11, there's a mention of innumerable angels, okay, right? And in, and in um, chapter 7, verse 4, there's a mention of 144,000, all right, who is that? Who are the 144,000? They're the Jews, and actually the Bible clearly says it in chapter, uh, chapter 7. I'm sorry, chapter uh, 14. They're Jews, they are men who have been sealed by God in the time of the tribulation. Right? That's clearly seen. That's not the church, because they're Jewish. Are these people that will not see death? No, these people, yeah, these people will, will see death. Some of them will, some of them won't, depending on which group you're looking at. Then in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, there's a mention of a great multitude. Look at that real quick as we're running out of time here. Chapter 7, verse 9. So we just got done talking about, he just finished talking about 144,000. And then in verse 9, he says, After this, chapter 7, verse 9, I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number of all nations. Notice there's not a definitive number. But they're from they're of, of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes. Sounds very similar to our 24 elders, doesn't it? But it's not. How do you know? We don't have to guess. And they're praising God. Look at verse 13. And one of the elders, so this gives a distinction. Because the elders are present, this group is also present, they're not the same. 
But the elder is going to give us the give us a definitive description of these people. This un, this un, uh, innumerable multitude. Look what it says. Verse four, uh, thirteen. What are these which are arrayed in white robes? And whence came they? And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. He said unto me, These are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. These are people that came through the tribulation as distinct from those redeemed also by the blood of Christ in the 24 elders. All right, so you have this great multitude of every nation which come out of the tribulation. And then there's a mention of Israel. There's also a mention of those who were beheaded for not taking the mark of the beast in chapter 20. But here's what, here's what I want you to see. There is no group, there is no group in all of the Bible that fits the description of the 24 elders except the church, Right? Gentile, redeemed, a specific number. Humans, saints. These aren't angels. They're not people in the tribulation. We already saw that. They're distinct from all these other groups. So God has groups. So to conclude, here's what you have. And this is why I bring this up. In the 24 elders, you have a description of the church of God a distinct company, right? A distinct company. Without, without any contradiction, it is clearly a description of the church of God, all right? But notice where they are. They appear in heaven before any judgment falls upon the earth in Revelation. See that? They're already there. Before there's a mention of the Antichrist, before there's a mention of his domination in peace even, before any of the judgments fall, what do you have? You have a representation of the church present, already having been given rewards with the Lord in his very throne, wearing crowns waiting for that moment when they will rule and reign with him for a thousand years. You see, the church is not going through the tribulation. By the time it starts, they're already seen in heaven. And that's why it's important for us to understand who the 24 elders are. Do you know who they are? They're you and me. They're you and me. Let's pray together.